welcome back to the Why Hockey Periodically Talking About Hockey and Not Making Kodak Black Jokes podcast. I apologize, firstly, I should say, welcome Corey Snyder back to the show, one of our absolute favorite guests that we've ever had and will ever have going in the future. Hi, Corey, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Well, I apologize to you because there could be a lot of Kodak Black jokes in this show. I don't think I have much of a choice. Uh, but it did provide some great content on Tuesday night. It's one of the more fun times I've had scrolling through hockey Twitter because everybody was making somewhat funny jokes. Yeah, I was out for that whole thing, and I opened my phone to just that, and it was very weird. I'll say that much. Well, I mean, without context, you're kind of going, what the hell just happened here? Yeah. But I see all these people making these tweets, and I'm going, oh, I remember the last time they invited a celebrity to a game. That went worse, so you know what? I'll take this. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was definitely, that was definitely a whole show. That was wow. six years ago, too. That was incredible. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe that that was six years ago. And, uh, yeah, no, it still feels like it was yesterday. And I saw somebody tweeting, oh, they still have the sweatshirts. How the hell do you still have the sweatshirts? My God. It's in, people, still in, wear, people still wear those? I, I like, think people have them for the, you know, collectability thing. And then, unfortunately... Soon after the news came out about Kevin's face, they didn't immediately burn them. Although I did see some people suggesting they'll put Kodak Black's face over Kevin Spacey's face. Now, if you wear that to a game, kudos. My fiance actually has one of those uh, Spacey and Space hoodies. It is gone now for obvious reasons. Well, yeah, no, it needs to belong in a dumpster somewhere. But, I mean, still, as I, as I said before, also, it is amazing. We talk about Panthers games being completely insane in every single way. They're now so insane that the insanity cannot be contained to just the ice. I guess at one point or another, that was going to happen. I don't know. Such is the way of the world. Uh, Again, more Kodak Black jokes coming in short order during this show. But we have Corey on, so we're going to talk about all sorts of things. Of course, his work at McKean's Hockey is something you should be reading if you haven't already. And, of course, help him out, pay for some of his amazing zone entry and tracking work which is vital information for anybody following the sport at this point point. and so I want to talk about just in general what you're thinking about this season COVID weirdness and all uh, I think in general you turn on a random game and the product's actually not that bad if you find two teams that are good playing full strength that is what do you think yeah it's a bit of a minesweeper game right now because you don't know which teams are healthy which teams are which teams are playing like a fourth string goalie from the ECHL because nobody else is because like nobody else is there. There's been a lot of blowouts this year. I feel like there's been a lot of eight, nine goal games, which really I feel like that hasn't happened in a long time. Not since the first season back from the lockout when there were all the uh, power plays, but it's, it's been interesting. I feel like it's a little more of an even playing field now than it used to be. At least unless you're playing Arizona or Buffalo. Well, I mean, forget the, for a second. How about the Leafs? You know, they, they played Arizona. What will happen there? That was, I mean, Karel Vamelka just pitched an absolute gem that game. That was I, I choose to believe it was Panthers legend Vladislav Kolyachanuk in his NHL debut helping the team that drafted him. Well, I mean, have you watched Arizona? I have I, watched I, them I, when they played Florida, and they looked pretty terrible. Yeah, well, like, I've... I mean, like, I have to watch, like, almost every team, and I've watched, like, a handful of Arizona games. Not a lot. They're probably, like, the least track team. But uh, for whatever, like, that goaltender has a real tendency to just play games like that where he's stopping, like, 50 of 51 shots. 
and every other game he's on he's out of the game by like the second period so he has no he has no medium like there is no average switch for him it's either like it's either Hashik or Cl- or Cloutier. <laughs> That's a great the Hashik Cloutier meter. I think we should create that. Uh, but yeah, no, I I watched them the the game they played against the Panthers the first time. They scored on their first shot, which was like 17 minutes into the game. Was that the game they outshot them like 27 to one in the first period? It might have been something like that, but it was it's like it doesn't even really compute in my brain that game. Uh, and their only road win until this past Saturday under Brunette after the initial one was at Arizona. So I don't know. Uh, I didn't but, even know that. I didn't even know they had only one road win since well, that. Since the first game against, it, it's been a thing that we've talked about on Y Hockey. It's a thing. It's because they've played so few road games compared to everybody else. But it's one of the things we've talked about. Like under Brunette, they won their first road game in Detroit in overtime, and then they didn't win another road game until the game at Arizona. They didn't play many road games in that time, and they had a lot of OT losses on the road, and then they hadn't won another road game until Carolina. It had been a thing that we had been talking about on this show, and it's, and it's fair enough. Like, you look at the Panthers' record. We're going to talk a lot about the Panthers on this show, obviously, but you look at their record, you go, wow, it's amazing, and you look and go, oh, they've played mostly all of their games at home, and they're yeah. amazing at home. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that. Like, I don't. I don't get to watch like every game in sequential order unless I'm like strictly following a team, but Florida is always at home from what I've noticed. That's the other thing about the season. The schedule is just weird. With, uh, and this like, isn't uh, pandemic related. This was just their schedule was home front loaded for whatever reason. They have a stretch yeah. in March where they play a, a West coast road trip. Then they have like a week off and then a, and then an Eastern Canadian road trip, which is weird. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that in a schedule. They go like three weeks without a home game. Seattle's had a very, weird road trip like that too i think they went from they went from like california to buffalo to florida i think like it was that would make sense to me that would make sense to me uh you know they've got some things going on at climate pledge arena uh we're all over the place but yeah i think this this season feels weird but i think maybe at the top it feels more even there's a lot of good teams it feels like in the league i think there while there is of course, there's always parity in the league. It feels like there's just a lot more good teams, particularly because if you follow the East, you know the eight playoff teams by now. I think we all do. And those eight teams are all pretty good. And in the West, the top teams are all pretty good, although there's a little bit more bunching up in the West compared to the East. I think that's why it kind of feels more even to me because the good teams are all on the level of one another. There isn't one team that's totally dominating everyone else. No, not until... Not except for just recent stretches, because I feel like there's always a team that kind of runs away with things for 10 or 15 games. And then they kind of hit the brakes a little or they don't get off to the greatest start because of injuries and whatnot. It's like early in the season, Calgary was kind of running away with, with the league and they looked like a, a machine. And then they hit the brakes a little bit. And uh, Colorado was kind of Colorado like was pretty slow out of the gate and they didn't really look like the same team that were last year but for the past month they've just been a freight train and Boston's kind of going through the same thing now too they're starting to win some games well even like the flaw even like the flawed teams or the teams that don't have great underlying metrics are still like they're still capable of putting some wins together like you look at the Rangers the Rangers get out shot like 40 to 20 every night but they have a they have a terrific goalie. It's just Sturkin. They can score their way out of problems. And like St. Louis is one of the like worst possession teams in the league. They have shaky goaltending, but 
they have a really high-powered offense, and they can win. They can easily win some games like through that. It feels bizarre at times when you watch some games and you go, "Wow, that that I just saw something tonight that really doesn't make sense." And sometimes that happens, where I mean, you'll just turn on a game, you'll go, "Okay, that that's bizarre." Like you see the Toronto Arizona getting goalie thing happens every year, but. There are a couple of times this year where it was like, wait, that shouldn't have happened. And, you know, you've, you'll see the teams that are possession dominant, maybe more than this year than others because of just who's playing. They'll lose, and you'll go, okay, that, that, that didn't feel right. Do you think there's a chance this year that there are more of those wacky games where possession dominant teams are losing? Or is that just an artifact of that's what we pay attention to now? I, I think we just pay attention to it more now. Like this kind of stuff happens every year, especially in the playoffs. Like there's always a hot goalie who will stop like 45 or 47 shots and they win the game three to one or something. Or a lot of like, oppert- there's a lot of like opportunistic teams now too, where it's like they only, they don't get a lot of chances, but they take advantage of the small chances they get. Like, like I mentioned earlier, the Rangers are definitely one of those teams. Washington Jets, might be the great example yeah, of that. The, yeah, the Jets kind of fall into that class too. Pittsburgh was kind of riding that way, but they're getting better. But there's a lot of teams like like Dallas is a lot like that too. Like I, I feel like there's just a lot of teams that can really like they know how to lock it down defensively, whereas like they'll keep a lot of shots to the outside and just play kind of prevent defense the entire game if they have a lead, but getting the lead is the problem. That would make sense. And then you have the Panthers who are the complete opposite of that. So actually, let's just start talking about the most insane team that hockey has ever created because a game where Kodak Black may or may not have had sex at a press box is actually one of the more normal Panthers games in recent times, which tells you a lot. Uh, You posted a chart. We're recording this Thursday afternoon on, I believe it was just zone entries, like chances created or chances prevented via zone entries. Mm -hmm. And you look at the chart, and there's all the way off in that bottom right corner, the Panthers. Like, breaking the scale offensively and defensively. When's the last time you've seen a team do something like that in a league where defense can often win and a league where you see teams usually bunched up in a pretty compact area around the center of those graphs? Uh, to the extent Florida has this year, I haven't really seen anything like that. I'm trying to think last year because, like, Colorado broke the scale a bunch last year, but they were they were a little better defensively than Florida is. Like, Florida is giving up a lot of chances, uh, a lot of chances off the rush and just uh, in general. But, like, I haven't really seen a team at, that's this extreme, but that's also because I've only been tracking, like, scoring chances off zone entries for the past two or three seasons. So it's a pretty new stat. There's not a lot of, there's not a real like historical gauge to go across, but what it does kind of remind me of are those Mike Sullivan Penguins teams where they were one of the worst teams in the league at defending zone entries, but they were one of the best teams at attacking off the rush and scoring off the rush. Uh, I I'm willing to bet Washington was a lot like this in the early two thousands too, but As far as, like, recent comparables, I don't really have one. I think Toronto maybe a few years ago could be one of those teams because they were definitely breaking the scale on this. But Florida's just been insane this year. Like, I really haven't seen a team that creates offense like this from all four lines. Like, even Ryan, guys like Ryan Lomberg are creating offense, too. Like, usually the fourth line kind of sags, and even the good teams have guys who drag. 
and don't create much offense because they're just there to like forecheck and defend. But Florida, it's like it's all attack all the time. I I call it spinal tap hockey. That's not a bad comparison. No. It, yeah, I mean that's that's the only thing I can call it because it's it is quite literally everything happening all the time. There is no off switch, and. I joked before the season, and I got some pushback for it, that the Panthers would be able to outscore their goaltending issues in the regular season. Turns out that that might be right, but also, for all the talk about Sergei Bobrovsky and Spencer Knight not playing well, they face a pretty insane quality of chance every night, and they got to do a lot of stopping it. And on the other hand, they know that the team in front of them is probably going to score four without blinking. It's kind of crazy, and that Vancouver game that just happened is a great example of they didn't play particularly well. They weren't doing anything crazy offensively, and they scored five without blinking. Like, you watch those games and you go, I think the best way to describe it is if we want to create new hockey fans by just showing them a random game, just turn on a Panthers game because you will like hockey once you watch the Panthers, even though it's not really indicative of what most NHL games are like. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Just it feels like they're playing a different sport from some of these teams. Like just watching them, because they're just constantly going back and forth the entire game. And I do wonder how much it's going to hold up through the entire season because, like, it takes a lot of conditioning and just it just takes a lot of conditioning and a lot of just endurance to play this type of hockey for 82 games. So I do wonder what it's going to look like in the playoffs. And it's definitely a strain on the goalies. Like. Bobrovsky's played really well considering like I mean considering his past numbers and like uh just the type of games that he's in that because like it's not exactly like the type of shots he has to see aren't exactly the ones he can like square up on and follow the play like everything is coming at you like pretty quickly when you're playing this type of hockey so it's a lot of just trial by fire and just dodging bullets from him but he's I mean, he's done a good job, all things considered, and Florida has been able to pick him up when he's when he's had a bad night. The other thing about this team that is amazing to me is not just that they do this. It's that their leading scorer has 15 goals. They've played, I think, 35 games, and they have seven players already with 10-plus goals. Like, the amount of depth that they have, and it went, they went from a team that was playing Mark Pesic at forward two years ago because they had no depth at forward and they couldn't play Mark Pesic on the blue line to a team that now has this. It, it's quite literally insane how quickly this changed and how players that at one point were ones that you weren't necessarily sure about offensively or ones that had potential but were struggling to meet that potential wherever else are now world beaters, basically. It just it does not make sense what they are doing. And... Jack Hahn made the point about a team being conditioned and able to play like this over a long stretch of games. I wonder if some of this is just the adrenaline rush from having like that 12-day off weird COVID-slash-holiday break. But at this point, you'd think that that would start to wane a little bit, and yet it hasn't. I, and for you, what is the most noticeable thing from the stats that you track when you watch these games? Is it just how easily they enter the zone? Is it something else that you notice compared to all the other teams in the league, even the other really good ones? Well, they do play a lot of... They don't really like giving up possession of the puck compared to other teams. Like Nobody really wants to give up possession, but like sometimes the game dictates that. 
like sometimes nothing's open. You got to go play chip and chase Florida. Like they're the one team that regroups like Huberto does this all the time. He'll kind of, even when he's in the zone, he'll pull out and just regroup and set up a better play off the rush. Like I don't see any teams do that when it's not three on three where like they intentionally concede the zone or take the puck out of the zone. But Huberto does that a lot compared to other guys. And so does Barkoff will do that every now and then, but it's like they they just play a different I don't know they just play a different brand of hockey because like the I guess the one comparison I've kind of I kind of glossed over were the uh, were the Blackhawks like from the 2010s because they played very similar to this where they had all lines going and they were playing like very high octane uh, very high octane hockey carrying the puck in all the time creating off the rush but like Florida just seems like that but on steroids. <laughs> Because like I haven't seen like the like all four lines do this as well. I haven't seen a team with all four lines that can play like this. And it's also like I don't know. It's I don't want to say it's like an island of misfit toys, but some of the guys they got contributing were pretty impressive. It's like Hordquist is like 38 years old and still contributing, and he he's maybe the worst skater in the league, and he could fit into this system and do well. And like uh, Joe Thornton, same with him. And like they got. They just brought back Mammon from Russia. And, like, mm-hmm. a few years ago, I didn't think this dude was an NHLer. Now he looks like – he just looks like a powerhouse. Like, I saw in this one game – I can't remember who they were playing, but he was going end-to – like, he had an end-to-end rush and almost scored. That might have been Calgary, I think. It was, yeah, it was, a, couple, I, it was a couple games ago. Yeah, I do remember that. He was he playing on to- the top line. Yeah, he would coast – like, he's on the top line now, and that's – I don't know, like, in a normal situation, you're like, wait, we got Max and Mammon on our top line. Like, what are we doing? But in Florida, it just, like, he's a complimentary player to bark off and declare, and it just works. Well, here's the other crazy thing about this. Again, going from a team that had Mark Pesic as a forward two years ago and scored a hat trick against Toronto, which was absolutely hilarious, and yet not the most embarrassing thing they did that year, obviously. But the fact is that they have, like, 18 forwards that they could play tomorrow and I'd go, no, no, I'm okay with that. Nobody that would be like, okay, no, he's not going to fit in on this roster. He, it's just not going to work. I've never followed a team in this sport. And again, my breadth of reference isn't as big as some of the people who we obviously talk to or we could go back in, in the past. But they've got 18 or so forwards, whether they play on any given night or whether they're scratches or whether they're in the AHL, where I'd go, actually, you know, I'm okay if they play tonight. I've never seen that before. That is insane depth of forward. And you guess you kind of need it when you're playing hockey at 11 every night because you have to be able to give some guys a break. And the other thing that's crazy about it is they've missed Barkov for like 10 games this year or something like that. Reinhardt's been out. Bennett's been out. And it quite literally hasn't mattered who they played because they'll still score four. It's just incredible. I've never experienced anything like this watching a team that is this deep and can do this pretty much no matter who's playing, unless they're down to 16 players. That's the only time when it hasn't worked. Yeah. And uh, even like some of these guys that aren't like the best skaters or they're not who you think they fit in, that would fit into a high tempo system like this, but they just kind of work in a complimentary way. Like Sam Reinhardt's not the fastest guy and he takes a back seat when it comes to creating and transition, but like he kind of knows what to do he like knows what his role is like in the offensive zone he'll post up a lot make those short like 
10, 15 foot passes to kind of to uh, set up better chances for other players. And like Verhege is a pretty choppy skater too, but he fits into this so well. Like he looks awkward as hell sometimes, like just like with the puck, but it just works, you know? It's so funny how many times you'll watch him just blast down the left wing and you'll go, okay, what's going to happen here? More often than not, it ends up in the net. Yeah. Because people like, aren't expecting that. Like the defense is backing off. The goaltending, uh, I've seen this like three or four times this year, and it happened against the Hurricanes too. Lions clearly not expecting him to shoot at that, and yet he's done this four times. He'll just blast down the left wing and fire a shot, and everyone's caught off guard. Yeah, like he always shoots like he looks handcuffed. Like he doesn't have like the best grip. Like he doesn't have like the best handle of the puck at all. But somehow it just it just works. I, I find that this whole thing about the Panthers is if you find players that fit a specific role and you let them do that, then you can make almost anybody work. Because I, you talk about Joe Thornton and Patrick Hornquist who have both been pretty solid when they've played, even though you know they're old. They fit in decently well in this system because their skill sets are tailored to what they're being asked to do. Then you have a guy like Sam Reinhardt, as you said, is not a great skater, but against the Canucks, he just scored two goals with tip-ins because he's just able to do like Patrick Hornquist kind of things to sit there post up and get his stick out. He's really good at that. Then you have Sam Bennett who could do, you know, what Sam Bennett was able to do in fleeting moments in Calgary, but just much better here. And it's almost like when you're watching this team and you're watching fans of other teams whose players have come to Florida, and I've seen this a lot with Flames fans with Bennett, trying to, you know, rationalize what they're seeing here and it's almost we've reached a point where like you can't take anything that the Panthers are doing seriously if you're a fan of other teams because the Panthers are so insane and break the scale that whatever they're doing is quite literally not replicable anywhere else even in Colorado I'm not sure these players would have the same sort of level of performance that they're having here and that's insane because the Avs are at the best the best team in the league at all of this yeah like uh, I kind of have like my with the stats that I track, like zone entry, zone exits, and uh, chance creation off transition, like that kind of stuff, there's like the holy trinity of teams that I've kind of noticed that are just consistently good at this. It's Colorado, it's Vegas, and it's Florida. And all of them, like their rosters are built pretty differently, like at least I think so, because like Vegas's defense is way different than Colorado's. They have a lot of more... They have a lot more tall tree-like defensemen, whereas like Colorado has a lot more quicker skating defensemen. Florida is more focused around their forwards, although they do have Ekblad and Uyghur. But their defense, it's kind of patchwork after that. Like They got Gustav Forsling off waivers and a few other guys that were kind Brandon of... Brandon uh, Montour? Yeah, kind of off the scrap heap, but they've made them... But they've fit in like a glove, but they're all built pretty differently like you can't really they can't really copy they can't really like copy each other just from how they're built, you know. Like Vegas is built on their wings. Floor, uh, the Abs are very top heavy with their top line. They have McCarr and they're more, more focused on their defense whereas Florida it's just about accumulating as many talented forwards as possible and just ha- making them work, you know. And there are some other teams that kind of try to copy this like the Devils play a very similar way to to these teams but it just hasn't really worked there yet for a lot of reasons like they can't they have they weren't able to score for years they didn't really have any forwards who could put the puck in the back of the net their defense wasn't very good either neither was their goaltending but with florida it just seems to the florida just seems to work and it helps they have a they have 
like two rocks there they can build around and bark and bark off in Huberdo. Cause like they, just because they can kind of control like where the play, where the puck is going on their lines, like Barkov's very like as fast as Florida plays, like Barkov's very good at slowing things down, especially like especially in the defensive zone. Like I swear to God, like every time he retrieves the puck, like everybody just backs off, and then they can kind of start a rush from there. And he's been he was really good at that early in the season, and uh, it's that's kind of why they can spread the wealth on their two lines and have Huberdeau play on a different line. I think it's. For those who are just getting back into following this team for years, it was they had to play Barkov and Huberto on the top line because they had no choice. Nobody could stop that line. And then the thought was, oh, if we survive that, then the rest of the team can't do anything. And they were right because the rest of the team couldn't do anything. Uh, and now the, they are so deep that they've barely played Barkov and Huberto together outside of the power play. And I never thought watching this Panthers team from two, three years ago that I'd see a time where they'd be best suited not playing them together and it was one of the things I said at the start of the year I'm like well watch what happens if they end up playing together that's the end like you put those two on the same line the way that they're playing right now good luck anybody you're not stopping that and now the playoffs are a different animal and I want to talk about that later but that's what's most insane to me is like I don't even think they've scratched the surface necessarily because of it's Andrew Burnett trying to figure out his way as an NHL coach of the possibilities that they could throw at teams depending on who they're playing and what they need to do because they have so many different combinations that could work. They haven't tried many of them yet. Some of them have been tried by necessity because of injuries and COVID and whatnot. But more often than not, I think sometimes I wonder if Andrew Burnett even wants to change it. Because Joel Quenville would be famous for line blending and changing everything at the drop of a hat. And he was great at that. He always found combinations that worked. I don't think Andrew Burnett's there yet, and that's one of the things that I think this team could get even better once Andrew Burnett finds his feet as a head coach. And the, the comparisons to those old Blackhawks teams make sense, although this team's a lot faster because the league is a lot faster than it was in the early 2010s. And that, I think, also adds another element to it. Like, this team's, I don't know if you'd call them the fastest team in the league, but they play at speed probably better than anybody in the league. Which which amplifies all this to an even higher level yeah it's them or call them or colorado and you know what's really funny Corey? the two panthers ads games this year were kind of boring it makes no sense yeah i think i watched the yeah did bark barkoff didn't play the one in uh colorado that was and the that one game was kind of dull as hell and i was saying i cannot wait to watch this this is a stanley cup final preview if this is the kind of hockey we get in the cup final we're going to create a bunch of new hockey players. It's going to be awesome, and the game was actually kind of boring. Yeah, like, that was the one game where Florida... Like, that Colorado's the one team I've seen shut down Florida. Like, Even though they yeah, didn't really yeah. do it that well, they just did enough to shut them down. Yeah, and that was, that was like, the one game where they didn't create, like, a boatload of chances. I think Vegas but, could do it. We haven't seen them play Vegas yet. I guess yeah. that could happen, theoretically, and they also haven't played Toronto, although... The Jack Hahn uh, workshop he did on comparing Toronto and Florida systems is one of the greatest videos on hockey I've ever seen because it shows you how two teams that can look so similar when you look at their numbers are so different when they play. And in many ways, I think Toronto's actually, like they're bad matchups for one another because the Leafs are so meticulous 
and I was watching this last night as they tried to score six on five against Arizona, and they were waiting for the perfect shot way too much, and they end up just running out the clock because they were too too patient. And, you know, it's the definition of too cute, even though I don't like that phrase. And the Panthers will just fire things on net no matter what. It's complete opposites in the way they play. And I'm really interested to see what happens when they play, although they don't play till April, which great work schedule makers. Um, I want to have to uh, have to talk about Mackenzie Weger because you're writing something about McKean's hockey, which hopefully is up by the time this gets posted. And our claim to fame at Y Hockey, I tried to say this when I was on Game Over with Andrew Berkshire, was uh, we were fans of Mackenzie Weger before everybody else was. Now, I didn't think we were going to see this out of Mackenzie Weger, obviously, but what is it about his game that is so interesting to you? Because he's a seventh-round pick. He played a little differently than the rest of the Panthers' defense when they were constructed with the Yandel mold in mind. And now they play this incredibly high-octane, insane hockey. And he's out there doing things that a player like Mackenzie Weger probably shouldn't be doing, and yet he's really good at it. What is it about his game that is so intriguing to you? Well, it's a lot of just how he kind of changed his game every year and just got better, like, into his late 20s. Like, I think of... uh, like, I was doing a little research on, like, how exactly he came into the league, like, what he looked like when he was drafted, and he was a decent offensive defenseman, like, in in the queue, but he also played on McKinnon's team. It was just kind of, it was also kind of ironic, because uh, if he was taken in the same draft as Barkoff, and uh, that was the draft, that was, like, the big Seth Jones draft, and Florida took Barkoff instead of Jones, and they got the their, story goes, they got yes. their top defenseman in the seventh round. Like, what are the odds? The but, story as that draft goes, as the crow flies, from what I remember was, the team was in the process of being sold. I think I've told this story before, but this is, this is how I remember it. This team was in the process of being sold that year, and they had spent a couple years prior that crazy offseason where they spent all this money on everybody because they had to meet the cap floor, and they were terrible after the lockout. They had no money because they were at the cap floor already. And apparently Dale Talon was like, the only way we're going to get better this year is if we draft somebody who can play this year. And it, if they were going to pick number one overall, it would have been McKinnon. Yeah. But because Barkov could play almost immediately, even though he was 17, and Yari Kekalainen pounded the table for him, they took Barkov over Jones and Drouin, and it's the best decision the franchise has ever made. So for all the Dale Talon slander that is out there, and he was a very not good GM at times because he couldn't build up depth. The decision to take Barkoff is one of the best decisions that has been made in recent draft history. And it's indisputable. And it's all because the ownership was being cheap. Yeah, but uh, back to Uyghur, like in the uh... I had to go on that tangent. I apologize. Well, it's interesting because I remember doing Florida games back in when he was coming through the league. And uh, he was showing well in my stats by entry defense. Like he was one of the... He... Like, he was one of the top players in the league, but he was also a third-pair guy, so there's like, a caveat there. And I was like, wait, who the heck is this guy? Like, Mackenzie Weger, Like, third-pair defenseman. They were moving him back between forward and defense a little bit, That I think, in his rookie year. And he was in the lineup for, like... he. I know he was getting into a lot of fights that year, too. So I thought he was, like... Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought he was, like, this tough third-pair, like, Robert Bortuzzo type of defenseman who was kind of just dime a dozen. But, like, as the... As the seasons went by, he got more ice time, and he was with Yandel the next season. And then all of a sudden, he's Ekblad's partner, and he became one of the most underrated defensemen in the league, sort of, sort of overnight. It's like somebody just discovered that hey, this guy's really good. 
like, hey, this guy's actually really a really good defenseman, and like maybe nobody nobody really paid attention to it because he plays with Aaron Ekblad, and it's a course. Oh, he's playing with Aaron Ekblad. Like everybody looks good with Aaron Ekblad, but I started diving into the film a little bit, and he's like a. It's just interesting to see how he's totally changed his game, and he's gotten better with the puck as like time went on. Because this is usually something that doesn't happen for defensemen as they get older. Like usually a defenseman is going to get worse, especially like through, especially through like offensive statistics, just because you get slower. There's more miles on you, but like with Uyghur, he started as this like he like I was looking at a film. I was looking at some clips of like 2018 Uyghur, and he was very good at kind of shadowing forwards, playing center field, and uh, but um, when you look at but when you look at him after he gets the puck out of the zone, he's immediately gaining off the ice. And then you look at the next year when he's with Ekblad. I think this is the first Quenville year. I'm not entirely sure. It, it definitely was because I remember writing something about Uyghur after a game against New Jersey where he was absolutely amazing. And they, it was, I think, the first game they put him with Ekblad after a really bad start to the year. And it was like, aha, told you about this guy. Because we had been mentioning him in previous years. Like, he plays different to the way the other Panthers defensemen. He's very different to Yandel and Pesic. And that was really great for people like us who hate the Yandel-Pesic model of defensemen. And it got we got really sick of it because it was holding the team back. He's just interesting in general because he's a... Just because of the the way he kind of go, he goes about his business, he goes about his business out there. Like, he's not the fastest player, but he's but he's very good at retrieving pucks. He's very good at taking good routes to pucks and picking them off the wall. And if you look at the, if you look at some clips from him in the Quinville season, like Florida's playing totally differently. They're not in their own zone as much. So he can kind of play an offense a little bit. And usually a guy like a defenseman like Uyghur, usually he's kind of a fish out of water when you're asked to play, you ask him to play offense. It's going to result in a lot of like nothing shots at the point or plays that kind of die on his stick but uh, what he was doing was he was chasing a lot of pucks down, creating a ton of stretch passes, and all, and you're like, and I, somebody that might not watch him as much be like, oh, when did this guy become so good at like these 200 foot passes? But he kind of just learned on the fly and just adapted his game to the situation in front of him because Florida has like been through so many changes, like between all the coaching changes and just roster changes over the past few years, and then. And then, like, he started getting played with the top line more because he was with Ekblad. And he, his offense just took off after that. Like, the way he reads the game in front of him is just really outstanding. Like, uh, I was watching this game against Dallas where he was, uh, like, he had, he did a really, he made a really good play to keep the puck in at the point on his offside. Like, a puck that had no business staying in the zone. He kept it in with his skate. And then went forward into backhand, creeped down the wall instead of taking a blank shot and uh, sent the puck to Lundell behind the net and kind of just shadowed him. And all of a sudden, there's a wide-open space in the middle of the ice, and they get a cross-seam chance that... They get a cross-seam look there, but Dallas was Dallas had two forwards there to block it, but he waits, holds onto the puck, fires like a snapshot with, between the face-off circles. That's a screenshot, and they score. So it's just the way he reads the game in front of him. It's really... Not something you expect from a player that's mostly that was known for like hits and standing up the blue line and penalty killing, but like 
the way he's just added more tools to his skill set as the time as like the years went by is just really impressive to me because it's not it's not typical development path for a defenseman especially now like a lot of a lot of these defensemen are either like in the league within the first two years and what you see is what you get but with him it's like he was a late round pick played in the e for a year or two was in the ahl for three years for three different teams and he just seemed to get better and adapt to just adapt to the playing situation that he had in front of him and just excelled at it and not a lot of players can do that so like i'm just i'm just really impressed like with the i'm just really impressed like with the route he's taken he's such a he's such an interesting player like to follow because he's not the no, like he's not the norm but i think he's a player that if you like if a defenseman is stuck in the in like the minors forever i think he's like a good player to model after because he really just accepted whatever role he had and just excelled with it and got better really on the fly survive in advance but i think it was just that innate skill set of being able to read the game and not reacting to the game that allowed him to succeed when you were playing Bob Bugner hockey, which was pretty bad, to Joel Quenville slash Andrew Brunette hockey, which is much, much, much better. And it's just that innate skill set of being able to read the game without actually having the puck. Like, he's not chasing the game, he's anticipating the game. And that was the biggest difference between Yandel and Pesic types compared to Uyghur. And that's why I think he thrives so well in a system defensively that asks you to read the game and anticipates what's going to happen. And sometimes he gets caught in no man's land and is caught chasing. You know, he's playing hero ball a bit, and that happens. And you'd like to see less of that. But also, if there was less of that, that might take away some of the things that he's really good at. And I think what Andrew Burnett's tried to do is, like, don't F with happy. We know what we're good at. We're just going to be really good at that. I I do kind of wonder if the Panthers are would have played this insane style of hockey if Quenville was still the coach. It obviously doesn't matter because that never would have happened. But I think that because the brunette mantra has kind of been just let's maximize what we're good at right now, it's kind of maximized what everybody on that team is good at from an offensive standpoint. And that Uyghur goal against Dallas is like, you wouldn't expect Mackenzie Uyghur to score that, right? It looked kind of not quite Makar-esque, but it looked a little Makar-esque, the way he drags that puck and gets away from guys and goes down to the right circle and shoots it in, and you're like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, it's like... How is he doing that? Yeah, it's like he made a Makar play without having really, like, the Kale Makar skill set. I mean, Kale Makar does that every single night, and you go, okay, this dude's just an alien. And then Mackenzie Weger does that. When you watch Panthers defensemen score, it's a lot of big point shots because they have the ability to get all of the defenders to collapse in front of them. That's how they'll score eventually with these, the, the big shots from Ekblad or even Forsling at times. And you just go, wait, Uyghur did what there? And, cause, and that's against Dallas. That's against a defensively solid team. You know, one of the premier we'll-shut-you-down teams we don't care about much about offense. And Uyghur did that against them. Yeah, like... Like, I always, I saw him do this a bunch in the playoffs, too, like, helping with the cycle and activating a ton, creating a lot of plays, like, behind the net and such. And I was like, where the hell did this come from? Like, whenever I watch it. But then I think, like, when he was, then I think, like, when he was playing under other coaches, he didn't really get to play in the offensive zone that much because his job was to keep the puck out of the zone. And he was very good at that. But 
the second like the puck crossed the red line, he was going off the ice and somebody else was coming on. So I guess there wasn't really a lot of opportunities for him to be like an offense to be somebody that could help on offense. And now that he's with now that he's like with Ekblad and on that five man unit with Barkov, like he gets to do that now. And he's a very smart player and he's and he's just a very smart player and he can kind of just adapt to the situation that's going on. And uh, the skill, I don't know, the puck skill, I just didn't, I didn't see it was there. I didn't know it was there, but I did see he had a couple of good offensive seasons, seasons in the AHL. And he did play with McKinnon and junior. So definitely he, he definitely like at least knows what he's doing, but I wasn't sure if like, the thing is like a lot of defensemen have that just like, it's zapped out of their game when they're playing a certain way for two or three years. Cause it's like, okay, this is my role. This is what I got to do to stay in the, stay in the lineup and stay in the league. But he, as he was taking more risks as he went higher in the lineup, he wasn't really afraid about getting benched or anything. And I, it really shows with just how he plays and the confidence that he plays with. You know, it's really funny because with all those Leafs trade rumors, which is when everybody started noticing he was good. Coincidentally, I don't know, maybe you get linked with Toronto and everybody now suddenly starts to pay attention to you. He would be a kind of an anti-Leafs player. The way the Leafs play, the what the Leafs defensemen are asked to do, and you watch them play, and after, again, that Jack Hahn video showed a lot about that, he wouldn't be a really good fit in Toronto because they don't want their defensemen to do all of those things. I mean, he could read the game and pass the puck, but some of those offensive instincts that he has, they wouldn't suit a team in Toronto that is deliberate in getting shots from that home plate area, those high danger areas, and Uyghur's game is not really like that. So his his fit in Toronto would have been weird the more I think about it now. Yeah, like, uh, I, I think he would have been fine in Toronto. It's just he might not have been. He definitely wouldn't have been putting up the numbers that he has in Florida this year. So maybe it would have been kind of, it would have been kind of wasted there, like the type of player he is. But like he's smart enough that he can fit into his own role. Like I think of like what TJ Brody's doing there now, he could definitely do that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that. But I think the fun Uyghur, the kind of Uyghur we're enjoying now, is is one that maybe only exists because he's playing for the Panthers. Is there anybody else as we that we'll start to shift to some other teams soon? Is there anybody else as you watch this team would you go, okay, what are what are we doing here? What's going on here? Who is this guy? Because there's been a couple guys this year where I've been like. Wait a minute. How did that happen? Uh, well, Radko Gudis has been scoring a, has scored a pretty insane goal and off. No, he didn't score a goal. It was against St. Louis. Um, he made like an insane play to set up Huberdo in front of the net, and this is a guy who just fired literally every single shot from the like every single time the puck was on his stick, he was going toward the net when he played for the Flyers. And in Florida, he's setting up cross seam passes like. I didn't see that coming anywhere. Like he's a fun, like he's always been a okay defenseman, but like the offense or the puck skills, I didn't think he had any of that in him. Uh, Brandon Montour is all of a sudden the player that he was in Anaheim now. Again, I think that has a little more to do with just Buffalo kind of just being a sinkhole for talent more than like Brandon Montour being a bad player. Gustav Forsling, I didn't really see him being a good defenseman when he uh, when he was in Chicago. Because, like, uh, Carolina got him on waivers, and they didn't even give him a look. Or, no, they got him in that DeHaan trade, and they he, he played the entire year in Charlotte, and 
they've lost him on waivers without really batting an eye and nobody really cared about it either. And all of a sudden he's a top four defenseman in Florida now. Although like out of Florida's group of defensemen, he's the one I got like the least confidence in just because he had numbers relative to the team this year have been not very good. And it's kind of one of the things that we've been pointing out where people have asked like, do they need new defensemen? I, this is my explanation for yes, because Forsling's numbers just haven't been what they were. And again, he went on an insane heater last year. That was never going to happen again. But his numbers, even relative to Gudis and somebody like Montour, are not where you would have expected them to be. He's still been pretty good by Gus Forsling's standards. But kind of why I still think they need another defenseman, because it allows Forsling to play in a more sheltered role defensively and would maximize his offensive instincts a little bit better but he and you're right about him being the one I had the least confidence in which is not what I was expecting coming into the season he's still been pretty good though but it's it's somebody who I think maybe a more tailored role might work a little better in the playoffs because I think good teams are going to target him the way that the lightning kind of did in the playoffs last year yeah he's just not he's not really the best with like uh He's not really the best with handling like pucks under pressure. Teams will kind of go after him and he'll cough the puck up or just lose it on the wall or something. And I mean, it happens. Like, I think a lot of teams, when you ask, or you, I think you ask a lot of teams, like, how they feel about their top four. And there's always one guy that they're not sure about. And it's like with the, with the Hurricanes, like, that's Brady Shea for us, although he's been on a bit of a heater lately. But uh, I think Forsling's like one of those borderline guys where it's like, yeah, we can play him in our top four for now and we can get by in the regular season. But when the games get tougher, it's like, are you totally sure? But even then, I mean, you look at the Lightning two years in a row, they have like Jan Ruda on their top pair and they they won the cup both years. Maybe the Lightning are just the lightning and we should also nobody should be surprised to tamper this good i kept saying like it doesn't matter they're going to be great regardless because they're the lightning that's what they do it is kind of a weird contrast of styles when you watch the lightning who can do certain things and the panthers who can do certain things it's, it's a ton of fun the one thing that i have found funny about this season is they'll just throw in guys on the blue light lucas carlson who the heck is lucas carlson maybe you know more because you're based out of there and he played for rockford, rockford for a while yeah throw away player in the trade to get rid of Connolly's contract and also you know Stillman and, and Borgstrom are in that trade and he comes in the lineup and I joked it's the Gus Forsling cloning machine because you're just going wait who what how did this happen that that's been the player for me where I went wait how did they turn Lucas Carlson into this how did that humanly possible I don't understand that What's funny is what's funny about Carlson is he's like the one guy in Rockford that I liked a little more, at least more than some of the more hype defensemen they had there, like your Ian Mitchells and your Nicholas Bodens, because like he was a veteran there. They played him more. He had more responsibility and he was the best. He was probably their best player at like quickly moving the puck out of the zone. And I thought like I thought like that skill set can at least carry over into the NHL, because even if you're not like if even if you're not like a big money player that's gonna like be even if you're not like that's gonna be like a rock on your team's roster you can be a solid depth player at the very least and survive those survive those minutes in the doldrums of the game and not give up any goals and i think he's he's done a pretty good job at that in florida like in the stats i have it's like nothing really happens when he's on the ice defensively so that's, that's great always, because that's always with all their other defensemen, everything happens so you yeah. know i'll take that 
Yeah, so I mean, he's a good steadying presence back there. Like I thought he could, like I thought he could be at least an NHLer, like just by watching him at Rockford. And uh, Oli Ulevi, hope he continues to get some chances to play because he deserves it. We'll see what comes of it. We I kind of spend... forgot. I forgot about that. Yeah. I I didn't because it was probably it might be the most Bill Zito trade ever. And if that's your brand, then I think that's a pretty good brand to to stick with. I really yeah, I, enjoyed that. I mean, what I don't understand is like. I mean, Bill Zito plucks Carter Verhage out of his own division. He gets Anthony Duclair for a he gets Anthony Duclair in a cheap contract. He gets Mason Marchment on a that was before a, that was before Zito. I have to be fair. That was before. Oh uh, yeah, was before him. Yeah, yeah Lusterainen was before them too. But either Luster, way, Lusterainen yeah. was before them. But yeah. the the system that they play makes them good. Well, and here's the thing though. It's like, I mean, they can get these guy. They can get these guys for not much and. Edmonton has to throw six million dollars at Zach Hyman to get I, that's Connor what McDavid makes the Edmonton thing so frustrating age. because I mean like I bet I, he's never going to say this but I, mean, I wonder what Connor McDavid they haven't played the Panthers yet and they're about to I wonder what Connor McDavid is thinking wait they can turn all these guys into amazing players and here I am skating with whoever the heck he was skating with Zach Cassian yeah, like God. apparently putting depth on your team is for these old school GMs, impossible. But for Bill Zito, who's been a GM for a year, it's apparently the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. I'd love to ask him in a candid moment, like what they look for in depth, because they've built depth in an incredible way that almost nobody in the league has been able to do. Because even the team like the Avs are playing with Darren Helm at times, and you're like, okay, why do the Avs have Darren Helm on their team? That doesn't make sense. And the Lightning still have to, you know, throw out Perry and Belmar. And well, it's like. like the abs get Logan O'Connor as like a mid jump round pick, and all of a sudden he's one of the best defensive forwards in the league. This is true. I have to it have to be fair. That is true with the abs. But I mean, it's not like they have their one. But it's not like the Panthers who can turn Ryan Lomberg into somebody useful. Like that, and that's no offense to Ryan Lomberg, who has actually been much better than I ever thought. That and, that's actually the confusing one for me because Lomberg was not Lomberg was like barely an AHLer a few years ago. But he's also a guy that just, I mean, his straight line speed is really good. I mean, he's a bit careless with it. That's how he injured Jacob McDonald. But True. Like, like, but he is a fast player, and, like, Florida plays fast, so maybe that's just how he fits. It's just you skate in a straight line and get pucks on net. Well, that's because I think they don't care about where they take shots from because they know, and this is something Jack Hahn, again, I've mentioned that, video a lot and i will continue to because it's incredibly good observations like they'll take shots from literally anywhere and it doesn't matter and for a player like lomberg whose thing is straight line speed he can go retrieve pucks after that even if that first shot is blocked and he has that little edge to his game where he can go get stuff in the dirty areas and that works when you're a team that plays fast and says okay we might take shots from bad areas but we're going to get to the other stuff quicker than you and that's how we create our chances. Yeah, so, and they do have a lot of trigger got trigger happy guys too. Like Vetrano is a lot like that. Yeah, and I think it, it makes sense for what they try to do, and that's why I I think I'd love to talk to Bill Zito about that because it is fascinating the way that this team is built. It seems haphazard, but it's not. Like I think it's it's like great jazz music or great music that seems like it's free flowing and all over the place, but if you look under the hood, it's actually tightly constructed, and there's a really good plan for it. Uh, that's what this reminds me of in many ways with the Panthers. Let's go talk about some other teams. I want to talk about the Hurricanes since we have you here, and the Hurricanes are a team that are also going to be contending, obviously, for the Cup in the East. 
I don't think that game that they just played against Florida is really indicative of anything because they played on the back end of a back-to-back and had Alex Lyon in net. But they've still been really good, even though Tony D'Angelo was not expecting him to run their first power play. Well, congrats. Uh, You know, Freddie Anderson having a season out of his mind. The defense court doesn't look quite as shaky as I thought it would, even though they lost Dougie Hamilton. And the forwards are still the forwards. I really like Seth Jarvis, too. What is your take on the Hurricanes this year? Because they've been, I would say, almost quietly, they have a very similar record to all the best teams in the East. They are, I mean, they're legitimately one of the better teams in the league. I think I think the goaltending, especially for Eddie Anderson, is papering over a lot of their defensive issues, though. Because, like, they're about middle of the pack in terms of expected goals, and they're, they have the best team save percentage in the league, so... That's part of the reason, but a lot of it, what's interesting to me is how much, how little has changed from last year, like just from their overall numbers and just from how they play, because like, even though they lost Dougie Hamilton, they lost some forward depth, like they're still scoring plenty of goals. They're still, it's still from like all the usual suspects, like Niederreiter's had a good season. Aho still leading the team in goals. Sveshnikov can't, Sveshnikov isn't scoring goals like everybody thought he would, but he is been like one of low-key one of the best playmakers in the league he's just been outstanding like from a passing standpoint and they got some unexpected help with Seth Jarvis well I don't know if Seth Jarvis is unexpected help I think it was unexpected this early but he's been better he's been better than I thought he would be like at this point in his career and also some guys coming up on the fourth line producing like uh, Derek Stepan's got a handful of goals Jesper Foss has been contributing pretty well especially compared to last year and uh they also just everybody's just pitching in is the thing and i think the the underrated acquisition of the summer was getting ethan bear out of edmonton i really like that trade i was yeah. really confused why the oilers who have no good defensemen other than darnell nurse were like no we need to trade one of our only other good defensemen yeah that, that was a very hurricanes trade and i was like okay this is the one move that they made. It like, saved their defense. That made sense. It saved their defense, basically, because, like, they were not going to replace Dougie Hamilton one for one. Like, he's just too good of a player. And, like, I understand not wanting to, not wanting to go seven years with him, but I think they're, they might have been lowballing him on the contract. But Ethan Bear does, a, does some of the things that Dougie Hamilton did to complement Slavin so well. And the biggest thing was going back to retrieve pucks and making the first pass out of the zone. And uh, that's, what they're, that's what's probably going to be missing with Dougie Hamilton more than the offense. And they got a guy who could do that for less money, and he showed that he could do that at the top of the lineup. And then he got COVID. And uh, he's been on the third pair since. But since then, like, D'Angelo's been on the top pair, and it's been, he's been pretty shaky with Slavin, like, all, like, in all honesty. Like, I think they got an expected, I think they got a rolling expected goals rate of, like, 47, 48, which is pretty bad on the Hurricanes. And uh, D'Angelo's not really scoring a lot five on five. He's just doing a lot of his damage on the power play. But Pesci and Brady Shea have become, like, a dominant second pair out of nowhere the past month. And, that's something I didn't even see coming because those two struggled to stay above water last year when they were attached at the hip. But those two have just been have been really good, and Shea is starting to see some pucks go in the net finally too, and which is good because for some reason, like Shea leads the team, and I think he leads the team in shots on goal, and 
a lot of the high danger chances off the long cycles that the Hurricanes create go to him for some reason. But he's actually scoring now. I think he's got three goals in his last few games. He's got half of his points in the last five. Like half of his season point total is in the last five games, if you can believe it. But it's just one thing or another happens to keep them in games, like to keep them in games and just keep the train going for them. It's like they it's play. Interesting. It's, like, it's interesting. It's yeah. interesting because that's not what I think about when I think of the greatness of the Hurricanes the last couple of years. Well, like they I'm haven't been alive in that way. Well, yeah, and they, they also had a lot of COVID issues, like right before the break too. They won a they won a game Florida. against. Well, I mean, they won a game against LA with like half an AHL team, and I think they shut them out three to nothing. I mean, the Panthers played with half an AHL team down two forwards and still outshot them and lost. Yeah, but, I mean, like it, it, it's one of those things where. Like, the Panthers also last year played terribly against Carolina, and it was one of the things that worried me greatly about a series against the Hurricanes, and then this year they've played actually pretty well against the Hurricanes in those two yeah. games, which yeah, has been like, odd. I didn't understand how that happened. This, uh, I haven't watched all the games this year, but the game on Saturday, it was the worst game I saw Carolina play all season, I think. And it was and it was something I was talking about with Tommy. It was their, quite clearly their best road game since Brunette took over, and I was very they, worried about it because... The they Panthers just had didn't no, play good road games. They had no answer. Like they had no answer for them, especially for Barkoff's line. Like uh, they were just come. Like they had to back. Like they, I don't know what was going on, but usually, what makes Carolina such a dangerous team is how good they are at retrieving pucks and creating offense off broken plays and kind of mitigating the bleeding, mitigating like the bleeding in their own zone. But. That didn't happen this time. It's like with that Verhage goal, um, like Uyghur just kind of sends a pass up the boards. And usually, like nine times out of ten, Stahl is going to cut that play off in the neutral zone. But hopped over a stick, Verhage gets a free rush into the zone and beats Lion short, or beats Lion far side off a pretty bad angle. So I wonder just, if some yeah. of that has to do with, A, they played the night before. B, there was a oh. basketball game earlier in the day, which it made happens, the ice terrible. Yeah. But, like, it's one of those things where I needed to see that from the Panthers and it happened against Carolina, which is one of the teams where I'm like, I, I don't like the way they play against the hurricanes. They seem to match up well with what Florida does. They did last year and yeah. this year they haven't. And it doesn't make any sense. The first game they had no Barkov in this game. They had no Bennett and Reinhardt and it didn't matter. But the one thing about the hurricanes that worries me when it comes to the playoffs, because at this point I'm now thinking about possible playoff matchups and what that could shake out is like the hurricanes are clearly looking to add a defenseman. And they've been in rumors for Klingberg. They've been in rumors for Chikrin. I've seen some people say that because they're also in rumors for everybody because that's just how the Hurricanes operate. But it's clear they need one. I don't think their forwards are an issue. Uh, do you, what do you think about those rumors and, and then possibly adding a big fish like that? Because I think that could really change their dynamic because, as you said, defensively they haven't been as good as you would think. They're kind of just treading water. And even though they're treading water, they're one of the best teams in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think a defense a defenseman would help at least somebody to give them another rock on the on the penalty kill. Like they don't really need a penalty killing defenseman right now, but they are kind of stretching guys thin. Like Shea, Slavin, Cole, mo- do most of the penalty killing, and they they eat up a lot of miles there. And I think they're a little worried about like, Bear's been a third pair guy since coming back from COVID, so I think he's not. I, I think he's not all the way back yet. Like at least conditioning wise, because early in the season this was a guy playing in the 20-21 minute range, and now he's playing more in that 16-17 minutes. And he was probably their, he was 
probably their best defenseman in that Florida game, maybe him or Cole, but they, but he wasn't playing top pair minutes and they were moving guys around all night. Like Brandon Moore is a coach. He's going to play guys. Like he's going to let like their play dictate the ice time. But for bear, it hasn't been that way since he came back from COVID. So I do wonder if they're a little worried about him, but I'm also like, okay, so who are they taking out of the lineup if they do get a Chikorin? Because, like, uh, I don't know. It's like, are you going to take out Ian Cole? Like, a, it, it's like, okay, so are you going to get, are you going to get Chikorin? He's going to be a third pair guy. Like, ideally, I would want Shea out of the lineup or move down to the third pair because I feel like he's playing a little over his head right now and has been for a while. Or, and, uh, but he's also kind of coming on lately, so I do wonder. I don't know. It's just a. It's just an interesting fit if they get a defenseman. Like I, I mean, I would like D'Angelo out of the lineup for a lot more than just his, a lot more than just hockey reasons. I want him gone. But true. But can't blame me for that. Well, I mean, he's also playing on the top pair right now. Kind of just, I don't know why he's on the top pair because him with Slavin have been kind of a disaster. Just because D'Angelo is. Like D'Angelo, he's he's only gonna do he's only useful in the offensive zone. Like he's he gets knocked off the puck when he has to go back to retrieve it. Slavin has to basically babysit him the entire time in the defensive zone, chase guys around everywhere, and it's just not gonna work long term. And I wonder if that's what they see because he's only here one he's only got a one year contract, and I do wonder if they're looking a little further down the line if they are targeting like a John Klingberg or or uh, Jacob Chikorin. I haven't heard anything on that front. Maybe I've heard Klingberg a little bit, which I could see that making sense at least more, at least more than Chikorin with Chikorin. I do wonder what the money's going to look like after next year. Well, he does have a three year. He's got three, I think three years left after this. So it's, he's going to be okay. Money wise. Yeah. Um, I think it's just the giving up what you'd have to give up to get him. Like, I guess maybe Jarvis has to go the other way. I wonder if it's Nietzsche's, but yeah, like a trade's interesting, but Carolina's in, he, they're in trade talks every year. So, like, I didn't think they were going to get hot. I didn't think they were going to get Yanni Hawk and Paul last year, but they did. And, well, he turned uh, out to be kind of what they needed because he was just like the pure nothing happens defenseman, which is why he's perfect for Dallas. But, you know, like, it kind of worked with him. It's like one of those guys where if you target a specific aspect of their game and you need to plug it in, it can work. And yeah. it did largely. You know, yeah. I think I think that's what separates good teams from great teams is that ability to target a specific thing in a player and if it works you get the best out of that thing which doesn't happen on a lot of teams but the great teams find a way to make it work and I think Carolina is one of the teams that can, that can do that. Um, usually... It's also interesting for me with Chikrin because you know I, I keep thinking Florida needs a defenseman that doesn't you know go all out all the time and I think also if they traded for Chikrin it would be one of those um they'll sell all the t-shirts in the world because it's a Florida guy playing for the Panthers they would make so much money and it would be really great but I don't know how they could pull that off from an asset perspective without having to you know give up like Anton Lindell which they'll never do um and but the Hurricanes have more assets I think they could give up some younger players and they could also you know kind of entice the Coyotes to take the contract of Jake Gardner (laughs) something like that. Like that's why yeah. I, it was also, they've made trades work when you would think they wouldn't make moves work, which is why I kind of think, you know, I would always be suspecting Carolina to be something along the lines. Is there any team around the league as we start to get closer to wrapping this up that is interesting to you for any reason, bad or good 
that you just watched saying, I have to watch this? Uh, well, I like watching Washington just to see, like, how they're keeping the train going there, aside from winning a bunch of games in overtime. I've been watching a bunch of Minnesota this year because they've been oddly entertaining. I kind of love, like, the whole... Uh, I kind of love like the whole like Island and Misfit Toys thing they got going on there. Ryan Hartman's got 20 goals. Does he really uh, have 20 Cap- goals? He's got close to 20 goals. Like that Capri- makes no sense. How did that happen? Yeah, like and Erickson X always. Like, I, I like watching Erickson X just to see like why his, like why his underlying stats are so good and like the little things he does on the ice to kind of, uh, to kind of make him such a great player. Well, the and other thing th- about Minnesota is they are the best team with the goalie pulled I've ever seen. Yeah, they're they just that's another team like Carolina. It's like they kind of just find ways to win, just find ways to stay in games that they don't really have any business being in. And their defense is pretty interesting too. They signed like every they signed like every borderline top four guy over the offseason and they're making that work and it's been pretty interesting to watch them to watch them kind of uh play this year, which is something you can't really say about the wild too often. Though it might be Kaprizov, but like even then well, like it's also like Mar- Marcus Foligno's got like 18 goals too. All of a sudden, he's a power play specialist, and I think he's his career high is like 12. Credit to them. I mean, they they've drafted well decently in the last couple of years, and I mean, they made bold moves to buy out Parise and Suter. And, yeah, you know, you got to give them credit for the boldness. Yeah, I'm really interested to see that team come like uh, come playoff time. Like, is this gonna is this gonna work in the playoffs? Because they're they're the team that just comes close to making the big upset every year. They're close to doing something. Every time it's like they're on the cusp of doing something that's like gonna make us take them seriously. It's like they come up just short, like they did against Vegas last year. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Like, it's a different it's a different squad they got this year. They're kind of running high with the percentages, but. This is what the Wild always do. They always kind of get dominated on the shot clock, but they run away with the expected goals mark. So who knows how that's going to turn out. I There's think a... another, another team that I, I, I mean, for funny reasons, is where the hell did Nashville come from? I was just about to say them. Nashville. Where in the hell did John Hines get a team that's now suddenly a juggernaut? I actually have a theory. It's if you draft an openly gay player, or you have a player that turns out to now be have come out, uh, the, the, the hockey gods will reward you, even if you don't necessarily deserve to be rewarded. So this is why Matt Duchesne suddenly looks like Matt Duchesne again? <laughs> I will choose to believe that because the gay agenda is strong. I mean, listen, the Raiders made the playoffs. They have an openly gay player. That doesn't make much sense. They shouldn't have made the playoffs. They have no business being in the playoffs. They're not good. And look at the Predators. I, I think it's the gay agenda. That, that might be the only explanation I can give. Yeah, I was about to say Nashville, too, because it's like they're in... I don't want to say they're inexplicably good because I look at the top of that roster and I'm like, okay, these are good players. Like Roman Yossi is still one of the best defensemen in the league. So is Matias Ekholm. Like D- Dante Fabro is supposed to be a good player. And they had a bunch of guys from Milwaukee come up last year that were good contributors like Janot and Alex Carrier. And I'm like, okay, like this isn't a team that should like be one of the worst in the league, but I think they're going to end up in the murky middle like with Dallas. But They've been better than Dallas, like by a lot, and also Saros is that Saros is just a really good goalie too. I mean, we saw that last year in the playoffs, right? Yep. Where he'd just go on insane heaters. I think and that's the only reason why they made the playoffs last year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just my what I did with Nashville. Like my mistake with them is I kind of 
I undersold like the talent that was on the roster because it ha- they hadn't produced for so long. Which I mean, to be fair, it's like like Duchesne hasn't scored like a top line player in three years, and all of a sudden he's he looks like Matt Duchesne again. But it's like I said, Yossi at home, like those guys are still very good, and they're going to keep your team out of the basement probably. I mean, they traded away Ryan Ellis, who has been hurt the whole year, unfortunately. Yeah. So like, are they rebuilding? What are they doing here? Are you trying to tread water? What? I, I I didn't understand the direction. Which it's is kind of just what they all. It's kind of just what Nashville always does, though. Like, there's only been in my years of watching hockey, there's been like three years where they've been like legitimately terrible. They just find a way to always do this every year with whatever roster they got. And they may make it. They may make the playoffs again. It's just I don't under I don't get I, it. I think they're in. Like I've watched. I mean, I've watched them a fair bit this year, and like that's. That's a good-looking team, but I don't know if it's good-looking because I've watched them play some bad teams and they're better than them, or if it's like they're legit. But I, they beat I do the think... Avs a couple nights ago. They yeah. they hung tough with them, so I mean, it's it's, it's clearly possible. But then they... again, it also could just be the gay agenda. Yeah, it's also it might just like... be that too. Yeah, I mean, I do think the guys, I do think some of the guys that got from Milwaukee are doing really well though. Like Janot's been a real like a real like a uh, lifesaver for them getting the depth scoring that they pretty much was non-existent last year. I thought last year I would watch them. Like these are the only guys that for the predators even looked remotely interested in doing anything. And again, yeah. maybe it was because the Panthers, when you played them, they would just kick the snot out of you. And Wonder if mo- maybe it's moving out West again. Maybe that's what's making them good. It might be that too. Cause the East is kind of brutal in the top eight, but then it gets really soft after that. And then, uh, I want to ask a couple of other questions briefly, just kind of a couple of other teams. Um, the, the Seattle debate got really funky for a while, uh, and of course it came back to analytics, but I think everyone has now kind of admitted they have no goaltending, and that's why they're not playing particularly well. Now, I didn't like the hire of Dave Hackstall. I didn't think the way they managed that roster was particularly great. I was explaining it to somebody who's in Seattle and was just getting into this team, but I didn't expect them to be this bad. But also, I didn't expect the goaltending to be this bad. And that's is it is it fair that we just chalk it off as they've got no goaltending this year and we'll see you next year? Or is there something else that's going on that's more concerning than just Philip Grubauer can't stop a beach ball? The only thing that's really concerning to me is that Dave Haxtell's teams have had terrible goaltending for as long as I can remember. And granted, that was all with the Flyers. That was like Steve Mason and... Uh, I think Alex Lyon played a lot of games for them there. Who's the other goalie? They Brian Elliott, that was the other one. But, like, they, their goaltending has never been great. But Grubauer, I mean, Grubauer was a very, he was a very good goalie for Colorado. The only thing I worried about him was that he hasn't played, like, a starter's workload in a full season, like, pretty much ever in his career. Even with Colorado, like, you look at his starts, he's been... There are stretches where he was injured, and last year last year wasn't a full season, so that was like my one concern with him. But that doesn't really that doesn't really explain what's happening now because it's been like forty something, it's been like thirty something games. He's been god awful, but I mean the goaltending is pretty much the is pretty much the main reason because that's I don't know. You start every game down like two nothing, one two nothing, three nothing. It's hard to come. It's really hard to play with a lot of trust like in your teammates and your goalie because that that was a team like their strength going into the year was going to be team defense and Grubauer was part of that and Grubauer has been awful and so is Drieger 
and oh oh who who didn't see that one coming it's another one of those where I was just like I, I just said like people wanted Drieger around and I just get like guys no you don't want to do that and I, I I didn't want Chris Drieger to turn into a pumpkin this badly although it happened he happened to give up only one goal against the Panthers because of course he did but other than that it's just been one of those things where, like, they look like a real expansion team. That's just it, though. It's like, I don't understand why there was some, like, huge debate that an expansion team is bad. It's like, I looked at the roster. I'm like, okay, who's going to score Who's gonna score any goals here? Let's see. There's Yanni Gord. Well, Jordan Everly. Like, Yanni Gord's more of an assist guy. Uh, and I'm like, okay, after that, you're really scraping the barrel there. Like, that team wasn't going to be good offensively heading into the season. And the roster management was really, really weird. Well, like they they built from the goalie, they built from the goalie out, and it's like I don't really know what the future of this team is because it's like you got you got Jamie Alexiak, Adam Larson, Jaden Schwartz, Philip Grubauer, Alex Wenberg, all signed long term, all as like they're they're their core guys now. Well, like in Yanni Gord, but I'm like like it's a core of middle six players, and like Vegas didn't take any term with their expansion draft, but Seattle added a bunch of guys with three, four, five years on their deals. Like, that was the confusing part to me, because I don't really know what exactly they think they're building there. Like, are they trying to be bad and get draft picks? Because they didn't really recoup any picks at the expansion draft. I think maybe they are hoping that the guys like Matty Beneers come in and the guys who they will inevitably draft high this year... uh, are going to kind of be the core guys around these guys that they have already. I think they thought that the level for the guys that they had, the Eberleys, the Gords, the Wenbergs, Donskoys, kind of was going to be higher than it was. Now, maybe it is if they get a save. So, I mean, maybe, because like I've seen what terrible goaltending does to a team that's pretty talented on paper. <laughs> that's the Hurricanes franchise history, basically. Yeah, like... There is no reason some of those Canes teams couldn't, like, at least compete for a playoff spot. But you get, like, 890 save percentage every game. It's not going to – it's – I mean, it does a wonder on the team's morale, too, because, like, if you're, if you're just giving up so many goals, especially off point shots, especially in games where you're controlling the play, it's like – it just starts to – you just start to hit a sag, and you're like, okay, like, we can't really trust the guy behind us, like – what are we supposed to do now? Do we press? Do we protect? Like, it's it, it's just a really hard way to really hard way to do business. Like, especially if you can't outscore your problems, like Florida can. They're the only team in the league that could have Bobrovsky at like an eight ninety and still win every game because they're just constructed differently. Yeah, and like they're they're the anti Seattle in that way. Like, I don't even think Bobrovsky's been that bad, although he hasn't been good. Um, but it's just one of those things where it's like it's pretty much always goaltending for them. Yeah. And like, it, it also, I think, Vegas broke our brains, too. Like, I think Vegas really broke our brains in a way that was just not plausible, you know, when it comes to uh, this team. Because nobody knew how to do the expansion draft in 2017. It was a complete disaster for everybody involved. And then this time around, nobody screwed it up. Almost nobody screwed it up. Yeah, like, but even the different, like, even then, like, um, Vegas was just grabbing a bunch of guys with no term on their contracts except for Smith and Marcia so, and a bunch of guys that they were going to buy out or stick on LTIR like Clarkson. 
like Seattle's got a lot of guys with term and a lot of like really mediocre guys with term. So like, that's my biggest concern with like the Kraken and like where they're going to be in like two, three years. Like, is this just like, well, I mean, because like, even if Grubauer was like league average or what he was in Colorado, what are they? Are they, are they a bubble playoff team? Like they sure as hell are not, they sure as hell aren't going to be what Vegas was in their first season. In the West, we, we thought, okay, this division stinks. The Pacific. We don't yeah. like anybody there except Vegas and Edmonton. Uh, we didn't expect Calgary to rise up, although they're playing poorly right lately, and we didn't expect Anaheim to be what they are. The other teams in the West, in the Pacific, have been better than we thought they'd be, I think is part of the other reason. They're not exactly great teams, uh, but they're better than we thought that they'd be in almost every instance. Yeah. And that's also kind of colored the way we perceived Seattle was, oh, these other teams aren't very good. This team's got pretty solid team defense. We expect decent things out of the goaltending. So, okay, the rest of the Pacific is bad. Somebody's got to finish there. And we also have Vegas brain. Let's let's take the Kraken. And then it turned out all the other teams in the Pacific were slightly better than we thought. And the Kraken now have no goaltending. That, that might be part of it. I'm not yeah. entirely sure. I mean, even... like, it feels like it in some ways. Even then, I'm not really, I'm not really that high on the Pacific, but I mean, because like Edmonton got off to the hot start, they've been awful the last two months. Like LA, I mean, LA is in a playoff spot now, which I didn't see coming. But if they were, I mean, if LA was in the was in the uh, Metro Division, though, they would be fifth. So that's the other thing. Like, I still think the division is kind of is pretty weak and pretty vulnerable too. Cause like, I mean, Anaheim's second. I mean, I only, I think Vegas is really the only team I kind of take seriously there. Cause Anaheim, they're still pretty young, and they're very. Anaheim is very, very feast or famine. Like they're, like, they had like hang, thirteen shots against the Rangers or something like that. Yeah, it's like they're. Or I mean, they, they look very good playing. one night, and then they'll look like the worst team in the league on another night. L.A. Mm. is L.A. is starting to figure it out, though, I think. I, like, I was a little they, higher on They've got a them. solid team. I mean, they hired Mark Bergevin, but, you know, they, they are a solid team, and they have a solid coach. They're just solid. There's nothing yeah. spectacular about them. That's so another team. It's like they go through waves where it's like they're good and then they're bad. Calgary got off to that really hot start, and they've been awful the past 10 games. I think I think that, you know, like this is one of the things that's happening with Vancouver is they're going out on this the, the road trip that takes you to Florida and Carolina and Washington at this point. It's just like, that's a murderer's row. You're not going to do very well there. Because, I mean, yeah, that's I fair. always thought that the, the, the double dip in Florida was always going to be the hardest one. And then you got to go to Carolina, and then you got to go to Washington, and you're just like, ugh. That that's that is a brutal road trip, and I didn't think the Canucks played that badly under Boudreaux. Even like there was a lot of things about that team that I like, even though they have a terrible roster. Bruce Boudreaux is an amazing coach, man. Yeah, well, like I'm looking at Seattle where they are right now. It's like, I mean, the division might be a little better, but like there's, I don't know. I look at, I'm like, there's no reason they can't like hang with some of these teams. Like San Jose is like twenty something points ahead of them right now. That should not be it. Yeah, they're 17 points ahead of Seattle, and what are the Sharks? They're bad. Like, the Sharks are awful. Like, I've watched almost every Sharks game. <laughs> like, they have, like, it's Timo Meyer and it's Timo Meyer, Tomas Hurdle, and Logan Couture, and sometimes Al- Alex Barabanov comes and produces too. But 
that's all they have up front. And Carlson's had a nice uh, renaissance season, though. It's been, that's good to see. But also, yeah. it's Bob Bugner as the coach. Who could have ever seen that one coming? He, he, he wasn't very good in Florida, is what I'm trying to I say. I don't... Yeah, that was an interesting one, because they were kind of dead set on making him the coach, like, when they were done with DeBoer. That's... I, I don't... I didn't like the way his teams played in Florida at all. Uh, the very, one year they were good was goaltending. It's C-plus hockey. I don't know. That's kind of what I feel about the Sharks and ever since Bugner took over. Any, as we start to wrap this up, of course... I intended this to be shorter than this podcast was, but when we talk with Corey, that's never going to be the case because there's always something to talk about. Is there any one player this year that you've wanted to keep an eye on for any reason, one or another? Uh, there's a lot of fun players to watch in the league this year, but is there anyone from your microstats tracking perspective where you go, okay, he's, he's interesting. I want to see what he does, even if the team around him is bad or something else like that. Well, I wanted to keep going into the year. The guy I was really watching for was Jordan Cairo in St. Louis because you, you uh, were right on that one. Yeah, like even in his uh, even in like his first few games, he got a cup of coffee with the Blues a few years ago. Didn't really produce, but there was a lot of talent there. And this guy just played differently than the rest of the team. He was he played a lot like Nick Ehlers in Winnipeg. Like he hung on, he hangs on to the puck forever. Just incredible vision great playmaker great skater but just fitting it all into the context of the game and not making it one on four was the uh challenge for him and you started to see him come around last year like he was one of the best players in the league off the rush and i that was that really caught my eye heading into this season i'm like okay this guy's really gonna pop off this year like if especially if he starts to develop, especially if he starts to shoot the puck more and like develop more of a, just work on his own shot, become more of a goal scorer. And lo and behold, look at him now. He's like the blues. He is like the blues go-to guy now, basically. And he's fun to watch. Yeah. He's just a, he's a terrific player. One of my favorites in the league to watch. Um, Another guy, Genoa, Genoa was another guy in Nashville that I had my eyes on because he didn't play much last year, but he was like low key one of the better four checkers in the league last year. When it comes to like when it comes to like disrupting exits and uh, recovering dumpings, he was one of the better players in the league. And all of a sudden, he's got twelve goals this year. And I'm like, oh, huh. So like maybe some of these stats I track are actually. It's like maybe the stat. I'm like, huh. Maybe some of the stats that I track are do have something to show later on. I think they definitely do because they can be predictive in some ways. Like you look at Kenzie Weger's stats and you go, okay, there's something here. And then he blows up. You look at some of these other players, you go, there's, there might be something here. And then okay. they blow up. This I, is think a, I got an actual kind of off the, like, this isn't like a real, uh, it's not really like a breakout candidate or anything like that. But one guy that's always like dominated my stats is Nazem Kadri. Like well, he, he, Even when he, he is having in, a great season. Well, yeah, like he was up there. Like usually McKinnon's kind of on an island on his own when it comes to like shot and pass. When it comes to like offensive creation, like shooting and passing and playmaking and all that, like he's usually on an island. Last year, Kadri was right up there with him, especially off like, especially when it came to creating offensive zone entries. And this year he's having, he's got like, he's like sixth in the league in points or something. I'm like, oh, huh. And it's also a contract year, granted, but still. It's, well, 
And the last question I want to ask before we wrap this up is when you're talking about teams like the Avs or the Panthers or Vegas or even Toronto, Carolina at their best, when they break the scale in terms of numbers like this, microstats, expected goals, what have you, is it more difficult to evaluate players in that context because everybody's numbers are pretty good relative to what you see around the league? Because, like, we talked about it with Forsling earlier, his numbers relative to the Panthers aren't particularly great, even though they're perfectly solid by any league metric, you know, any average metric you would see around the league. So is that trickier when you're evaluating a team like that? Or is it easier because the, team, the players that don't stand out, then you can say, okay, there's something here that we got to look into? Yes and no. Like, I do think... Uh... It depends on how you look at my stats, too, because, like, you can look at them in context of the league and you can look at them in context of the team. Like, when you have a team that's a huge outlier, I like I like looking at them in context of the team. Like, if you have a team that, like Carolina, that's very forecheck-based and you have a player that, you have a player like Tara Vinen who it looks terrible by zone entries you can see that, oh, he plays on a team that dumps the puck in and only creates off the four check, so he kind of just does what the system tells... He kind of just follows the system and works within it. Whereas, like, a team like Florida, they only create off the rush, and a player like, say, Gustav Forsling, who is not very good at defending the rush, or Radko Gudas, not very good at defending the rush, but his numbers look great elsewhere, like, then, yes, I think there might be a little red flag there. It's like they're dealing with players... come. They're dealing with, like, a lot of back-and-forth hockey but it's also showing, okay, they're kind of struggling when they have to, they're kind of struggling when they have to skate backwards and kind of uh, play guys one-on-one. So I think there's always like a caveat there that you can kind of look into. Like, I don't really consider my stats like envy all. I consider them like bringing context to expected goals and stats like Evolving Wild and uh, Jay Fresh post a lot. It's like, okay, they have a great, like, this player has a great expected goals rate. What are they doing to, like, what are they doing to contribute to that? Like, a guy I brought up earlier was Joel Erickson Eck. And, like, he's interesting because Minnesota is a pretty above-average team in the stats that I track. So their players are a little more, their player stats are a little more uniform. So it's there where you can kind of look at, okay, this guy's good at this, this guy's bad at that. Erickson Eck um is different because his line only his line plays a lot of dump and chase so he doesn't create a lot of zone entries but what he does do is he recovers a lot of dump ins he disrupts a lot of exits he creates a ton of offense off the forecheck and uh you can kind of just go from there when you look at like what what exactly they do to contribute on the ice so that's, that's the context we need yeah that's it's it's just a different way of looking at a game statistically. And I think the better we are at looking at the game differently, even a game as chaotic as hockey, the better we are. And that's why your stuff is great. So, again, we could talk about this for hours on end. We don't have the time to do that. So where could people find your work if they don't already know your work backwards and front? Um, well, you can go to my Twitter account, Shutdown Line. I post a lot of, uh, I post a lot of charts and observations there all the time, pretty much every day. And I also have a website, all3zones.com. There's a link to my Patreon there, and uh, that'll give you ac- that gives you access to all the charts that I have now. They're now paywalled on Patreon, on t- uh, all the Tableau stuff that I post. So if you want a huge library of Tableau charts of my stats, go be a patron. <laughs> well, we will, of course, we want to support your work, 
and that's, you know, we've got a lot of people out there that we would love to support on Patreon. And, well, I would if I had the money. I don't. But, again, if you can subscribe to Corey's work, do it. It's awesome. And wouldn't be a talk with you if I didn't get you out of here with music recommendations, as my co-host asked for. Um, hmm. Yeah, I've been, I've been kind of reverting to my... I've been reverting to, like, my old playlists a lot lately. I've been really into... I've been really into this uh, collaboration that In Flames did with Pendulum. So, like, In Flames is this, like, really cool Swedish metal band. They've been around since the 90s. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. And they did a uh, they did a little collaboration with this... Uh, I don't know if... I don't really know if it's techno or something, but it's, like, uh, this really cool, like, EDM music, and they did a few mashups. Or They're not mashups. Like, they kind of just did a song together, and it's something i've been into a lot lately i've been listening to a lot, like a, a lot of old music though a lot lately like 60s music i think it's in a time in life where we all are kind of listening to comfort music gotta be fair yeah it's just one of those things where it's like you know do you really want to go try something new in a world where trying something new feels really risky or do you just want to go back to what we're already good at and what we already know yeah well like this is new to me though so like i only found um... out about this like a month ago but it's like, apparently they released it in like 2014. Well, hey, there's only so much time we have to be able to look after all this stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, we'll give you more time for music recommendations in the future. Uh, again, thanks, Corey, for coming on. Always great to talk with you about talking to talk soon. Yeah, thanks for having me.